All right, Luke chapter 6, 1 through 11 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 6, uh, 1 through 11, we have scripture on the screen for you. Uh, we have Bibles floating around the room here. If you don't have a Bible back at home, would you take that Bible home and keep it? It's our gift to you. We would love nothing more for you to bring that home and to, uh, to break that in. Uh, this is week 16 in a very long journey through the, the book of Luke about the, the man and the message and the mission of Jesus. And if you were here when we started, it was right around the Advent season, the end of November, preparing for Christmas. It was so warm, wasn't it? It was so uh, joyful. It was Christmas time and uh, just a, a wonderful, wonderful time. We had two uh, conception miracles. Uh, we had Mary singing her beautiful song. We had angels appearing uh, individually and lots of angels filling up the sky, lights and, and, and songs. We had kings coming from the east and bringing gifts to uh, the Christ child. Uh, we had the parents then going like today and, and dedicating their, their children to the Lord. There was just so much hope at the very beginning. And it hasn't been very long into this series in terms of how long we're going to be, uh, a year and a half in this, this book. It didn't take very long for the, the hopeful, right, to become hostile to the point of today we end with them plotting the murder of Jesus. And they will, will as we celebrate and remember on Good Friday, they will nail Jesus Christ to a cross. Last week we saw uh, Luke chapter 5, 33 through 39, the battle was fasting. This week in chapter 6, 1 through 11, the battle is the Sabbath. And there are all kinds of other battles we're going to see in the book of Luke. Lots of little battles, but the greater war is legalism. The greater war is religiosity. That's, that's the greater war. It's a threat to all of us. So when I was in college, we used to play this really ridiculous game that we called Mr. Commissioner. Uh, the other name for Mr. Commissioner was silent football, right? Football has uh, a commissioner. And so it was this really crazy, dumb, stupid game with uh, our friends. We'd sit around in a circle, and, and we would have this... Uh, this imaginary football that you would pass around. That was the point of the game. And you would pass around this imaginary football uh, in, in the circle, and there was just a ridiculous amount of just absurd rules. Uh, like you could only speak in the third person. You could never use personal pronouns, which is harder than you might imagine. Your, your hands could never leave your lap unless you were passing uh, the ball, and on and on and on. There's these uh, ridiculous rules, just absurd rules that had absolutely nothing to do with football. Uh, there were no touchdowns. The only way to win this game was simply by participating in the game and not breaking the rules. I'll teach you. It sounds exciting, right? Not at all. It was actually really, really fun. And some people loved the game. Other people hated the game. See, the game had uh, one person, every time we played the game, was appointed Mr. Commissioner. And he or she could uh, enforce the rules, but also could invent rules as the game went along, as he or she pleased. And so it became this ever-evolving game, which is rules upon rules upon rules upon rules that were ridiculous and kind of fun. And again, some people loved the game. Other people hated the game. You know who loved it? Mr. Commissioner. And everybody who was really, really good at keeping the rules. Now that's legalism. 
That's the greater war that we're talking about. It's this, this bunch of uh, just massive set of ridiculous rules that are not in step with the essence of the game. It's this ever-evolving system. And those who make the rules really enjoy the game. Those who are good at keeping the rules really enjoy the, the game. But it's this game where nobody ever really wins at all. That's legalism. Except that legalism is not a, a game. It's many people's reality. Perhaps it was your reality at one point, this, this thing we call legalism. It's, it's sure to turn many, many people away. Many people, some of you perhaps, were raised in the, the faith and you saw it as oppressive rather than free. I'm here to propose to you today that the gospel, which means good news, the good news of Jesus is not oppressive, it's free. It's not religion, it's a relationship with God that is freeing. It's this weight that is taken off of your shoulders. Legalism is when people take the scriptures that God in his goodness and his grace has given to us and they add to them. And they start to pile on top of the scriptures any number of rules that were never actually commanded by God. It clouds for people the the truths of the scriptures. It, It clouds for people the good news of Jesus where it's very difficult to differentiate between what is from God and what is from man and man's tradition. Many people have preferences in in worship style. Many people have uh, very meaningful traditions in their own family life and their their faith life. You maybe have made some some personal boundaries in your own life to keep you away from sin. That's good, but it's a real problem when you would impose them upon other people as if they are the very words of God. Listen to Proverbs chapter 30 verses 5 and 6. It says this, it says, every word of God proves true. It also says in other translations, every word of God is flawless. It says, he is a shield to those who take refuge in him. The idea of taking refuge in the Lord, that it's good to be close to the Lord. It's not this oppressive thing. You take refuge in him. It says, do not add to those true flawless words, lest he rebuke you. That's a firm word. And you be proven or found a liar. So it can't get any more clear than that, can it? We as Christians believe in this thing called sola scriptura. It's solely the scripture that we base our lives upon. The scripture is our guide. The scripture is our truth, not man's tradition. Sola scriptura. And he says here, very clearly, God, through the the one writing the Proverbs, that his words are true, that they are flawless, You don't need to add to his words. But if you do add to his words, what does it say? He will rebuke you and he will prove you out to be a liar. And that's what happens in this text. Jesus very passionately will rebuke. And he will prove the legalists, the religious, to be liars. In Luke, as you read through this amazing book that we've been studying through, you don't see Jesus attacking the people that one might think he would attack. You don't see Jesus attacking the prostitutes. You don't see Jesus uh, attacking the, the rotten tax collectors who are ripping people off. You don't see Jesus ripping or, or, or attacking the people who are, are you know, getting wasted all the time. 
He's going to these people. He's showing his love for these people. He keeps extending grace to these people, even appointing some of them to be his own personal disciples. Who does he keep attacking, though? He keeps attacking the religious elite, the people who would be kind of in my position today. He keeps hacking away at their foundation, this false spirituality that's not based on the word of God. It's based on their own man-made tradition that makes them feel better about themselves. They had become so self-righteous. They had become so arrogant. We're called to be God-righteous, not self-righteous. Where we trust in the work of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and that's our righteousness, not our own attempt to obey some set of rules. Do you see the uniqueness of the approach of Jesus in terms of who he went after? He went after not the lowly, not the super sinful. He went after those who were showing these people this false spirituality and in turn were damning them to eternal separation from God. So he attacks the religious leaders, the dammers of souls, for deceiving people with a lie, a false solution that is super heavy upon them that they could never in themselves attain. As if they were Mr. Commissioner. And we have one commissioner, right? His name is Jesus. And so here in Luke chapter 6, Jesus hacks away. Let's read it. Look at verses 1 through 5. It says, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man, that was his favorite name for himself, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So let's recap that, can we? First of all, what day is it? It's the Sabbath. That would be Saturday. Remember, the battle is Sabbath. The greater war is legalism. So let's talk about Sabbath for a minute. When God created all things, back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, it says, and on the seventh day, that would be Saturday, on the seventh day, God finished all his work that he had done, and he what? He rested, right? God doesn't get tired. You need to know that. The scriptures will tell us uh, later in the, in the Psalms that he never sleeps nor slumbers. So God doesn't need to rest. He doesn't get tired at all. But what he's doing is he's setting for us a precedent. He's setting for us a pattern. He's setting for us a, a, a rhythm that he wants us to live in where we would have a day of rest, a day where we cease producing, cease creating, whatever your job is, whatever it is that you do, that you would take a day and you would cease and you would say, you know what? God's going to keep the world spinning if I don't work today. That's what God sets for us in Genesis chapter 2. He's not tired from all his work. He just spoke things into existence. He's resting, setting precedent for us. He then later, with the Mosaic law in Exodus chapter 20, gives this command. It's the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments, and it says this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath, or rest. On it, you shall not do any work. And so that's the Sabbath. The Sabbath is this gift from God. God has packaged it and said, this is for you. Here's a vacation every single week. How good does that sound? That's what God says. This is my, my gift to you. It's a gift. It's a, a, a good, wonderful thing. He says, I want to give you rest. Men, women, 
employees, animals, the land, don't work it, let it rest. All creatures get to rest. It's a gift from God. And it's an old covenant, Old Testament command. This is a must. I want you to rest because I know, Bostonians, that we're here for greatness. We're here to achieve great things, whether it's education or you're living in the city so that you can do something amazing with your career, whatever it may be. I know that we're about greatness, but God says, listen, I'm greater than you. And listen, you need to rest in order to flourish. You need to rest and display faith that says, I know that God's going to keep this world in orbit if I'm not working for a day. And so that's his command. It's, it's a gift. You must do this. It's a good gift, right? We like to rest. We like to vacate. But it can be hard for us. We're constantly moving, constantly working. I've shared this with you guys numerous times before, but it's just one of those, just a, a, a study that has just stuck with me. It's a study that said, uh, it looked at the, the major cities in America. And of the major cities in America, it said these are the things that people find their worth in. These are the things that people value. You know what it was in New York? Power. How powerful I am. How much real estate, how much money. My power. And so that's what they pursue. You know what it was in L.A.? In L.A., it was how well they play. Well, like on the weekend, I party hard. I, I was surfing. I went up this mountain. I went skiing over there. And you brag about that. That's what you talk about. You know what it was in Boston? Busyness. Busyness. How, how, how many of us have had that conversation with somebody? How you doing? Oh, I'm so busy. I mean, I have that like every other day, Right? And I'm guilty of it too. I'm so busy. You know what? That's our, our way of saying, I'm so important. People need me. I'm valuable. I'm so busy. And God says, yeah, you need to rest. You need to humble yourself. Stop thinking so highly of yourself. And let me say that I've got this. That's an, an act of faith. That's a Sabbath. It's a gift from God. It's a great, good gift. It's hard for us in Boston in particular, but very, very important. But here's what legalism does. Legalism takes a good thing and adds a lot of rules to it and makes it to, you know, it doesn't seem very good anymore. And so uh, this coming Saturday, my little Nora is going to turn four years old. Can you believe it? Oh, man. Turn to four, and her birthday will be, her party will be on Sunday with with family. We're having a little frozen party. You ever heard of that movie? Yeah. And uh, I was completely shocked when she said she wanted a frozen party. (laughs) And we made the mistake as parents, parents, all the young parents in here, let me warn you, don't bring up your child's birthday to them until like a day before. Because we made the mistake of telling them that the party was coming back in January. And so every single day we get uh, prayers of all that she wants for her birthday. We're always talking about birthday. Can I, can I have the iPad and show you on Amazon all that I want? And, and that was a, a huge mistake on our part. And, uh, but the one gift that she just keeps saying she wants is she wants an Elsa dress. Right? Remember Elsa from, from, from Frozen? And so I can't wait till this party where we give her her, her Elsa dress and, and she puts it on and, and she's, I just know this girl. She's going to put it on. She's going to twirl around in this thing and just start dancing around the house and singing Let It Go. It's going to be awesome. I'm really looking forward to that. But what if I said, okay, Nora, here's your gift. She starts and I say, hold on. Don't put it on yet. Here's your dress, but I've created some rules about the dress. When you put it on, you must have on proper undergarments. We don't want your dress to twirl up and you to be indecent. 
And so you're going to need a tank top that's white underneath. You're going to need white underwear. We can't have those princess printed underwear because that would be a conflict of interest. That's not okay. We need to have some kind of leggings on, maybe some white ones or some, some pantyhose maybe. Um, you know what? The cold doesn't bother Elsa anyways, but it will you. And so you're going to need some appropriate gloves on uh, when you wear that. Um, you know what? You're not allowed to wear your dress on any day other than Saturday because the coronation of Elsa was on Saturday. So not Sunday or Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, only Saturday. Whenever you wear your dress, your hair needs to bra- be braided such as Elsa's hair was. You must properly iron your dress because you don't want to misrepresent the dress and, and all that it uh, is about. So no wrinkles on your dress. When you take off your dress, you must fold it properly. You must put it in a drawer where it will be stored at between 60 and 75 degrees. Uh, when you're wearing it, you must not eat or drink because we don't want to ruin this beautiful dress. And when you twirl, no more than two twirls to the left because we don't want you to get dizzy and then ruin it because you get Sick. And what would she say? Um, you know what? You can have the dress. Right? I, don't, I don't think I want the dress. That's legalism. right? That's where something that was a great gift gets completely ruined by just piling rules on top. Just a very simple gift. And for this simple dress, all we need is just a simple girl to put it on. And in her freedom, just dance and sing and have a good time. But that's what happened with the Sabbath. It was this beautiful gift. Rest. Here you go. Just, just rest. But what was supposed to be the best day of the week for these people became the worst day of the week. As you read the scriptures about the Sabbath, it's very simple. Just rest. That's pretty much all it says. It says, do nothing. Don't work. Don't make your animals work. Don't. Don't do any, just, just rest and take a day to refresh. Enjoy your family, enjoy your friends, enjoy your Lord, take a hike, see the works of, of God's hand, go to the beach, get a, a, a book, enjoy some recreation, go on a bike ride, go to the gym if that's fun for you. People are like, I would never go to the gym, that's the opposite. Cease producing and trust that God's in control. And it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated for us in the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so that's why we have the freedom and the license to now worship on Sunday. Today you're here, welcome, rather than Saturday as the Scripture said for people under the Old Covenant pre-Messiah. We do read in history that there was a sudden shift virtually overnight from Saturday to Sunday in the day of worship. People started to call it the Lord's Day instead of the, the Sabbath because Sunday is the special day where Jesus Christ resurrected. So we're going to celebrate Easter here very soon. But really every Sunday, even today, we gather on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. We're celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. This massive shift happened overnight. Some of you have been around Christians for a long time and you know that you can't get Christians to make any kind of major decision or shift of history or shift of tradition very fast at all right whether it's the color of the carpet in your church building or it's some building project or it's some program that people are like just in love with but this happened overnight why because there was this cataclysmic event that jesus resurrected from the dead and so we now sabbath we now rest and worship the lord on 
Sunday. So Sunday is, in general, our day of rest and worship. And we can enjoy it with some liberty because Sunday isn't explicitly commanded for us in the New Testament. Does that make sense? In the New Testament, we do get some things that are described. There's differences between what's prescribed in the Bible and described in the Bible. Worship on Sunday is not prescribed in the New Testament, but it is described that the Christians made this historical uh, quick shift and they started to worship on the Lord's Day. But it's not this thing that we need to be legalistic about. For some of us, uh, maybe uh, you've been a part of a church that did a, a Saturday evening worship service, and that's completely okay. Uh, I'm working right now, right? Um, and so I take my day off on Monday. That's appropriate. We have firemen in the house. We've got police officers here. We've got uh, people in the medical field. And you have to work on a Sunday because those places have to stay open. And so maybe you rest on another day of the week. That's a, that's a good thing. But it's part of God's creation rhythm that we would take a day and we would rest. Very, very simple. Not very complicated. But the religious leaders of this day made it so complicated. They made a rule book for a day off. Can you believe that? Here's how you do your day off. They were so superficial, so religious that they started to look for ways that how could I do better at my day off than other people? Honor God better on my day off than other people so that I can feel better about myself and I can in essence earn my salvation. I in essence can earn right standing with God. And so they just loaded it with rules and regulations that weren't biblical at all. And Sabbath became the most difficult day of the week for people, and they did not enjoy it. They did not enjoy it. It became a massive restriction rather than a freedom that God wanted to give. If you read through the, the Jewish Talmud, it has 24 chapters of Sabbath law. You look at the Bible, just rest, just don't work. They create 24 chapters of Sabbath law. 24 chapters. Some of these laws, let me give you a few of them. One was you couldn't walk any more than 300 feet on the Sabbath because that would be work and overexertion if you're walking. So if you go on a hike, sorry, you're a sinner, right? Um, If you lived at the end of a long street, however, what you could do, now get this, this is crazy. You could take a, a piece of wood or a rope or a wire and you could lay it out at the front of that long street so that that would then, God would say, okay, that's their doorway. And so those 1,000 steps from there to there didn't count. That was your doorway right there. And so that was something that, that you could do. That was written in there uh, for them. It's insane. You, you couldn't carry anything that was heavier than a dried fig. And so um, you couldn't carry your Bible to church, I guess, um, or your beach towel. <laughs> that would be me to go down to the, to the beach. Um, you have to be extraordinarily light towel or, or Bible, I suppose. Uh, There were all kinds of forbidden foods on the Sabbath. There's like 39 forbidden things on the Sabbath. Um, You could could eat nothing no larger than an olive because of the work that was required to uh, chew, I suppose. Um, You you couldn't take a bath on the Sabbath, which for some of you, that's like the most restful, relaxing thing you could do. You couldn't do that on the Sabbath because the water might kind of spill over and the soapy water would be mopping the floor. And so you can't do that. That would be work on, on the Sabbath. Um, you couldn't look at the mirror. Women couldn't look at the mirror because they might be tempted when they see a little gray hair poking out to pluck it. And that would be work. And so you couldn't look into the mirror. You couldn't uh, dust your clothes off and kind of straighten yourself up on, on, on the Sabbath. Because you might flick a, an insect off. And uh, you might kill that. And for some reason, that was not a good thing to do on on the Sabbath. You couldn't even move your chair 
on the Sabbath because in so doing, you might make a rut in the ground and that would be like you plowing on the, the Sabbath and that's work. And so it was, it was absurd, absurd rules. And remember, what they were communicating to the people of the day is that your salvation, your right standing with God depended on these rules. Does that sound like a day of rest to you? Absolutely not. It brings new light and new understanding to when Jesus says in Matthew chapter eleven twenty eight, 28, he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See it in that light. It's amazing that people say, yes, Jesus is incredible. The, the freedom, we're laboring to be at right standing with God with all these insane rules, and Jesus says, just come to me. You trust in me. You trust in my life, and you're right with God. People only were living with uncertainty as to whether or not they were, in fact, right with God, living out every single rule. And Jesus says, that's legalism. But the gospel is the good news of Jesus that says, I have done for you what you could not do for yourself. I have lived perfectly the life you could never live. You trust in me, not in your performance. These guys are trusting in their performance and how good they are. And they become self-righteous and arrogant. Stop trusting in your self stop trusting in your ability to live up because jesus lived up that message is for us too jesus has lived up that's how you can be certain that you're right standing with god you trust in what jesus has done you see the difference you see the freedom religion religiosity compared to the gospel of jesus i wonder how many of us grew up in religiosity Loads and loads and loads of tradition, loads of extra biblical stuff given to you as if it were directly from God when in fact it's man's tradition. And we said, as we read earlier, we do not add to the scriptures at all. We trust in what God has given us, that it is sufficient. We believe in the sufficiency of scripture is a huge thing that we rely on. Otherwise, we can just keep piling on and letting this thing evolve until it's something that's not at all what it actually was. Let me tell you, God wants every single one of us to enjoy the freedom of the gospel, not the slavery of religion. So how does Jesus handle it all? God shows up to earth as a man. He walks in our shoes and he encounters these self-righteous, arrogant people telling everyone, here's how you please God. Here's how you please God. Stuff that was never outlined in the scriptures. What does Jesus do? In this account, he gives us two examples of what Jesus does on the Sabbath. Let's look at them real quickly. Number one, Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on a Sabbath. And they pluck a head of grain. Now, according to the Old Testament, this was a law that God gave in his holy welfare system. This is how God took care of people who were poor, who were immigrants, who were refugees, asylum seekers, aliens. Here's how he took care of the down and out and the hunger. What he would do if you were a farmer is you would harvest everything on the inside, but you would leave the margin. You would leave the outside so that somebody walking by could pluck and and they could eat. And then even on the inside, if something fell to the ground, You've been apple picking, I'm sure, if the apples fell to the ground. You didn't go pick those up. If you're a farmer, you would leave those for those people. And, and that was Jesus' people on this occasion. They were, they were hungry, and so they 
plucked and they rub their hands. Anybody ever been to the Sam Adams Brewery where you do that with the hops, right? You rub your hands and then that's what they did and they, they ate. And who pops up? <laughs> I always picture it like these Pharisees just kind of pop up. Their head comes above the, the, the wheat. Who pops up? The Pharisees. That's what religious people do, right? They're everywhere, and they're looking, right? And they're trying to find an occasion to accuse you, and that's what happened with Jesus here. They pop up. They're right there following him in the grain fields for some ridiculous reason, and they uh, accuse him. They want to find you at fault so that they can make themselves feel better about how good and holy they are. And they say, Jesus, why are you and your disciples breaking the law on the Sabbath? Explain yourself. First of all, were they breaking God's law? No. Were they breaking man-made tradition? Yes, they absolutely were. This was seen as harvesting, right? You're working, you're harvesting, and you're, you're eating. And so what Jesus does is he reminds them of a Bible story. He says, let me, let me remind you, because you believe the Old Testament, right? Yeah, we do, of course. Let me remind you about King David. He says, remember King David? He says, so you have a rule that you can never make a, a meal on the, the Sabbath because that would be work and so you've got to do it the night before and uh, this is apparently making a meal. This is apparently harvesting. He says, remember in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 21, Saul was king and he was doing a pretty lousy job at it. He kind of became a little loco and so uh, God appointed David and said, David, now you are the next king. And, and, and crazy Saul gets a little threatened and so he tries to kill David and his mighty men and they're running to stay alive, David and his mighty men. More than 3,000 feet, the Pharisees probably said. Yeah, shut up, Jesus said, right? And so David and his, his mighty men, they're, they're running, and they run into the tabernacle, and they tell the priest, uh, we're hungry, we need some food, would you, would you help us out? And the priest says, you know, all I have is the bread of the presence. Now, what the bread of the presence was, was uh, there were, in the presence of God, there would be 12 loaves of bread, there in, inside the, the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And, and, and those loaves of bread would just represent God's provision for people. And they would switch out that bread every week. And so it was there, and the priest says, you know, I, all I have is the, the loaf from the, the presence of, of God. And so the priest says, well, um, I mean, I guess you could eat that. So he asks, are you, are you holy men or not? In other words, are you those kinds of soldiers who travel around, womanizers, and you do your thing? Are you sleeping around? Or are you God-honoring soldiers? And David says, oh, no, no, we, we honor the Lord. We're about the Lord and his purposes and his mission. We're just hungry. And so the priest says, you know what? Okay, you can have this bread, and they eat it. So Jesus then shares that story. He says, so did they sin? David and his men and the priest for eating or providing unlawful bread. He says, did they sin? He says, no, they did not sin. And then Jesus is saying, I am even greater than David. I'm of the line of David, of the, the tribe, and, and, and I am greater than David, and my men are greater than David. And if your Bible says that they're allowed to eat on the Sabbath, well, certainly I'm allowed to eat on the Sabbath, and I'm not even breaking Bible law. Jesus is saying, you religious men before me today are not consistent with the scriptures. Listen to me. Our legalism litmus test is the Bible. Every time. 
you hear me? Our legalism litmus test is the Bible every time. And that's how it was with Jesus. That's how it was or is to be with us. That every time we need to hold it up against the Bible. When rules are applied to you and they're applied to someone else about the faith, you hold them up against the scriptures. Does that mean that we will never, as Christians, obey extra biblical rules? No. Parents, it's going to be completely appropriate for you to talk about curfew with your children. Right? Here's your curfew. You need to have a curfew. That's completely appropriate, right? You'll have a, a, a curfew, and I'm doing it because I love you and I care for you. But parents, we need to differentiate between our ki- kids sometimes. This is Bible. This is just my rule. God has called me to care for you. God has put me in your life as an authority. The scriptures do say for you to obey the authorities that are in your life. Similarly, for all of us, parents or not, we're all called to obey civil law. So if there is a law, we need to obey it. And we obey, the scriptures will tell us, unless the civil law is calling us to disobey the law of God, like denying Christ, as some in our faith are right now facing in other countries. We would say, no, we're not going to deny Christ, even though you and your law and your authority are calling us to. Otherwise, we do obey extra biblical law. The difference with a legalist is, is, is twofold. One, they were making people follow their law as if their law was equal to Scripture. And the second thing was they were insinuating that their law was helping people to earn God's favor. And the only way to earn God's favor is through trusting in Jesus who perfectly earned God's favor. Be cautious to differentiate religion and policy with true holiness that is found in Christ alone. Not long ago, the length of a man's hair was associated with holiness. Not long ago, the style of music, not even the lyrics so much, just the style of music was associated with holiness for many in our faith. How you dress, not talking about modesty, but just how you dress in general, certain style was associated with holiness for many in our faith. And see what happens with this religiosity and these extra biblical rules is it makes us all, if we were to follow that, we'd all look like conservative 1960 Christians. And that's not what he calls us to be, is to be drones. There's, there's freedom in Christ. There's freedom like with my little daughter and how she puts on that dress and how she's going to dance compared to some other girl in some other neighborhood or some other city when she puts on her Elsa dress and how she's going to dance. There's freedom. God says, here's a gift. It's a free gift. It doesn't make you all drones. It doesn't make you all look alike. You're different. But you receive the gift with faith and with joy. Freedom in Christ is beautiful. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's an easy yoke. Let me take that heavy yoke that those people have put on you. Take it off. Now, the next Sabbath that we look at gets right at the heart. Read with me verses 6 through 11. 6 through 11 of chapter 6. It says, on another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, 
to save life or to destroy it. And after looking around at them all, he said to them, or to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Wow. So here we are, another Sabbath. And the scriptures have said you're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. And so according to their man-made rules, one of the rules was the only kind of medical care that you could do was emergency medical care. Otherwise, it would be work. And so, of course, there was a list about what was emergency or, or not. And emergency medical care included traumatic events. It included the birth of a baby. Well, on the Sabbath, Jesus' teaching inside of the synagogue, as we've seen throughout the series, was his custom. And who was there? Once again, the religious folk are there. And what was their objective? It says it was their objective to find a reason to accuse Jesus. Well, they got it because there was a man there who had a withered hand. I had a young lady in my ministry one time where, where she had a Literally, she had a, a withered up hand. She had this, this, this illness. And I just felt so bad for this girl because she, she, especially as a teenager, was very self-conscious about it. There were other games that the kids wanted to play. She couldn't do it. There were some very real restrictions that, that she uh, had because of this. And if I had any ability at all in my power to heal her any given time of day or day of the week, I would absolutely heal her if I had that power. And Jesus had the ability to heal, and so he does it. It says that, that he knew the thoughts of the religious people. He, he, he sees them, he knows them. He says, I, it's not this, I know their thoughts, like, I bet I know what you're thinking. It was this divine, supernatural, he literally read their minds when you look at the original language. It's a display of the power of Jesus and knowing their thoughts and knowing the condition of this man with a withered hand. He says to the man, he says, come, come stand right here. And the man comes and he stands beside Jesus. And then he directs his attention with the man beside him to the religious people in the room. And he says this. He says, hey, is it against your law to do good on the Sabbath? To save a life or to destroy somebody's life? By ignoring a very real need. And what does he do? After posing that question to them, he says, why don't you stretch out your hand? And the man stretches out his hand and it's functioning again. And this act of stretching out his hand that was even considered work on the sabbath you can't stretch out your hand like that when you toss something in your hand you couldn't toss it from one hand to the next that was one of their laws it can only be tossed from one hand and caught with the same hand can you believe that so even that stretching out of hand according to those religious people was an act of work he stretches out his hand and he is healed and then jesus turns his attention back to the religious And we read in Luke that they were filled with fury. This healing of a poor man who had this ailment that was so restrictive in his life, that healing made these religious people angry. And they decided and they discussed what they would do with Jesus. And what we know that they ultimately determined is that we're going to accuse him of blasphemy and we're going to nail him to a cross, as we'll think about in a a week and a half or so. Jesus had become the greatest threat to their religious system that they invented, not God. And today I believe that he is the greatest threat to religiosity. Something that I think we need to be done with. 
religiosity, self-righteousness, arrogance. Jesus is the great threat. These people did not even care about this man. They only cared about being seen as right or righteous. There are all kinds of traps that come with religion, with legalism. Religion, first of all, as we see here, makes you uncaring. You just want to be seen as correct. You don't really care about actual needs like that. But the gospel of Jesus causes you to want to serve other people. He served me to the point of death, even though I didn't deserve it, even though I don't measure up. He died for me. I want to serve other people in that way. That's what the gospel, the good news of Jesus does in your life. Religion makes you self-righteous. You think, I've earned it. I've kept all these rules. And now you're able to look down your self-righteous nose at other people because you've been so good. You lived such a moral life. The gospel says, you know what? Even when I was immoral and I struggled and I made lots of mistakes that I know other people think are wrong and I, I know that the Bible even says is wrong. But God in his great love came and took me and saved me and brought me into his family regardless of my past and my mistakes. That's, that's the gospel. Religion makes you unrelatable. Because who wants to hang out with the person that thinks they're good at everything? But the gospel makes you relatable. So many people say, I can't share my faith. I can't tell other people about what Jesus has done in my life because I've got to get my act together first. You know what? You might be like the 12 disciples who were a bunch of losers in that society. More effective in the early days when you're just saying, look what he's done in me. I didn't earn it. You're relatable now. That's, that's the gospel. Religion makes you unbiblical. Those guys were unbiblical. They were going against that story of King David. But the gospel is truth. It's, it's Bible. That's the message of the entire Bible. The whole Old Testament was put there. All those laws were put there so that you could see that I can't measure up. But Jesus measures up. And even when I fail, Jesus comes and does for me what I couldn't do for myself. He extends grace and love after living a life perfectly and says, here it is. It's freedom for you. I've died for you. You sinned against me. I could wipe my hands of you. But instead Jesus says, here's a gift. It's not a reward. It's not you earned it. The gospel is a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the free what? The free gift of God is eternal life. Religion makes you unbiblical, but the gospel is truth. So back to our opening verse and we close. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you. And you'd be called a liar. And he rebuked them. He proved them to be liars. He proved their system to be flawed. He proved religiosity to be flawed. He proved grace to be the only way. He proved his gospel to be truth. First of all, I want to call some people here today to receive the truth of Jesus, the gospel. Again, Jesus has extended his hands of grace to you. and said, yeah, you don't, you don't add up. You don't measure up. But I love you anyways. Yeah, you failed many, many times, but I love you anyways. I love you. I die for you. And all you have to do is trust in what I've done for you. This life and the death and the resurrection. If you trust in that work of Jesus, you can be made right. You become a Christian. You follow Jesus. 
Not that you're going to be perfect. None of us are. I don't stand up here as a Christian who's perfect. I stand up as a person who has the flawless, perfect truth. Some of you today need to say yes to Jesus. The Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Very simply, you call upon Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you. I trust you. I invite you to that today. And the best way you know how when we pray or as we sing at some point today, call out to the Lord. And then come let myself or Pastor Ryan know. We'd love to know that. We'd love to celebrate that. Communicate that with us on your connection card where at the bottom it says, I've trusted and followed Christ today for the first time. Second thing I want to say to you is, is to you Christians in the room. Be careful with your rules. Be careful with your tradition. Not all of them are bad. But examine your heart. Are you putting them up to the same level as the scripture or even above? Be very careful. Examine. Help your children see the difference. Explain the why over here. Explain the power and the authority over here. But be very careful. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the time that we've just shared together in your scriptures. Thank you that your promise is that Every time we look at your scriptures, they do not return void.